The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about the dance of opposites, and that happens to be the name of this wonderful new book by our friend Kenneth Cloak, who's been on our show before. And the subtitle of this book is Explorations in Mediation, Dialogue, and Conflict Resolution Systems Design. It's just really wonderful for not only for mediators and not for, not only for facilitators, but really for everyone who wants to learn about how to really resolve conflict in their own lives and with their own families and in their own community. So let me tell you a little bit about Ken if you didn't hear him before on our show. Kenneth Cloak is the director of the Center for Dispute Resolution and a mediator, arbitrator, facilitator, coach, consultant, and trainer, and he specializes in communication, negotiation, and resolving complex of multi-party disputes. And he is also the author of The Crossroads of Conflict, which we interviewed him before on that book, and this is his new book, The Dance of Opposites. His practice includes everything from divorce, family, community, grievance and workplace disputes, collective bargaining, organizational and school conflicts, sexual harassment, discrimination, public policy disputes, and actually I think he could do anything because when he's got those skills, those skills of mediation that are just healing of conflict and being a peacemaker, he can do anything. He facilitates coaching, consulting, and training practice, practice, and um, this includes work with leaders of public, private, and nonprofit organizations. And you're going to hear more about him, but we have a lot more about him on our website at conflicthealing.com. And of course, you can also go to his website at Kenneth Cloak, that's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-C-L-O-K-E.com. And if you go to our website at conflicthealing.com, you'll see his picture, his bio, the um the cover of his book and we link right to his website so you can just enjoy and enjoy him as much as I do. He's wonderful. Thank you so much, Ken, for joining us. Wow. Thank you very much for those nice words, Mari. Well, you pleasure deserve to be it. with you again. Yeah. So first of all, why don't you tell us um, how is it that you decided to write this book after you wrote The Crossroads of, Com- uh, the Crossroads of Conflict? 
Well, this is actually book number 12. Oh, 12, but I remember uh, yeah. the other one. <laughs> so I, I um, have been writing, churning these out for several years. And basically, the object of this particular book is to try to say something new about um, uh, some of the deeper and more fundamental aspects of conflict that, for the most part, we have missed uh, or haven't looked closely enough at. Uh, so each chapter is an exploration um, in some new direction. Yes. Uh, in terms of conflict resolution. Yeah, I love it. Let's talk about some of those, because I've been reading this, and I'm really intrigued. And as a mediator, of course, I, I really feel everything that you're saying, and it makes so much sense to me. But but we all, in some way or another, are mediators in our families, with our children, with our friends, with our communities. <clears throat> so it, it really relates to everybody. Let's talk about what you mean by the language of conflict. Okay, uh, that's chapter one yes. in the book. And uh, basically, I think there are some things that all of us know uh, and uh, about how we behave when we're in conflict. We know that we are argumentative and accusative and uh, that we are oftentimes disrespectful, uh, that our anger or our fear or our guilt or our pain or grief tend to alter the way that we speak to each other when we're in conflict. But my purpose was to go a little bit deeper than that and to take a look at exactly how we form sentences when we are in conflict. And basically, there are three fundamental elements in any conflict sentence. And they're pretty common in ordinary sentences, but they have a special relationship to conflict. So the very first thing that we generally include in our sentence is a pronoun. Yeah. And the pronoun is generally you. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's they, and sometimes it's he or she, but generally it's you. So what is the form of that pronoun? And the answer is the form that it takes when you connect it with something negative is an accusation. Right. Everybody perceives it as an accusation. And uh, the uh, likely result of being accused of anything is that you are going to respond by uh, in two ways. One, no, I'm not. And two, you're something else that's worse. <laughs> right. Right? Right. So um, that part is fairly simple. But then if you ask the question, well, what could you do instead? Uh, there are at least three more pronouns that could be used in place of they, you, he, or she. Right. And those are, first of all, it. Uh, that is to describe the problem as an it rather than as a you. Right. In which case, the form the pronoun takes is, an, is that it creates an object out of the problem. Right. And what you're going to get is problem solving. If you say I about a problem, that's either a confession or a request. Right. And there's going to be a lot of listening if it's a confession, and there will even be listening if, there, if it's a request. But you're not going to get the defensive reaction that you get if you use the word you. Right. And if you use the word we, uh, it's an invitation into collaboration, as in we have... Uh, not uh, talked about this clearly enough, and we need to reach some agreements with each other in order to solve this problem. Right. 
You know, I mean, people talk all the time, you know, you hear the therapists talk about the I messages, how I feel. And and that does help, you know, and obviously in mediation, when people say this to each other, we need to have them say, well, tell us about what is the issue here. Talk about the problem. It. What what is the problem? Or how are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling this when he said this. Yeah. So but I like the way that you've shown it in in terms of. The pronouns that are uh, accusative versus the ones that are more neutral or the ones that are, in, you know, engaging. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're quite right. Therapists have known for some time about making I statements. There's a second element in our conflict sentences, and that is a verb. And the verb is, generally speaking, either... Um, to be or to do. Right. So the usually in conflict, we say, you are something. <laughs> and um, the difficulty, if someone is that thing, is that you have just prevented any form of problem solving from taking place, because you <laughs> once you've labeled the problem as the person, right. the only thing to do is to get rid of the person. And that's generally what we end up concluding. But the reason we do that is because we've framed the problem incorrectly. And if we frame the problem as, uh, this is what you did, well, people have changed their behaviors before, and they can change their behaviors in the future. If we think about this, this is exactly what we say to our children. We don't say, you are a bad person. Right. We say, uh, I don't like what you just did. Right. Or when you didn't do your homework, you you failed the class, and so we need to do something about how we're going to get you to do your homework and get a better result, or something like that, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So the third element is the actual accusation itself. For example, you are lazy, mm-hmm. okay? in which case you're going to get, again, no, I'm not, and you're a slave driver or bossy or whatever it might happen to be. But let's take a look at the word lazy for a moment. And what we can see is that when we choose that word, we have have made an indirect negative statement of what we want, that is, of our interests. Not just what we want, but the reasons why we are upset. Mm So our... uh, every accusation is an indirect negative statement of interests, which can be presented positively and directly. Uh, as in, I'm working really hard here, and I'm getting tired, and I can see that you're, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, not doing anything. Could you give me a hand? Right. Um, the second thing that the accusation is is also a negative indirect statement of emotion. Um, which is, I'm getting upset here, or I'm working hard and you aren't, and frankly, I'm a little jealous, <laughs> uh, or whatever it might happen to be. But it's indirect, it's negative. So if we could frame it positively, that would be significantly different. Yes. Uh, I would really appreciate it and love it if you would uh, help out. And I think we could enjoy ourselves and have a good time doing it. Right. We do it together. It's, 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 that, it's, it's that easy way to say, yeah, I was just going to say, it's just like when when we're in mediation, and, and I know you do this, but this I love the way you're showing it, like the whole syntax, but I always tell clients, okay, you told me what you don't want, now tell me what you do want, 
make exactly. a proposal about what you do want. And I said, exactly. when you're with your kids, you don't tell them what you don't want. Or, you know, good parents tell what you do want. So I said, so just think of it this way. Just always think, t- ask for what you want, not what you don't want. Because then you have to think through, what do I really want out of this, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then it becomes uh, a completely different conversation. Yes. You've, you've maintained the content, but you've changed the, the focus of the conversation. But there's a final third element that is really, I think, the most important and the least used in conversation. And that is beneath this negative statement of interest and beneath the negative statement of emotion, both of which are indirect, there is something else, which is a deep-seated relational fear. And you can say, you can get to that by asking, for example, what does it mean to you uh, that he hasn't uh, helped you out around Mm -hmm. the house? Mm Mm-hmm. And the answer will probably come back, it means he doesn't respect me. Right. It means he doesn't care about me. And then we start to get one step deeper, it means he doesn't love me. Right. Uh, Or it means I'm unlovable. Mm -hmm. I'm not worthy. And with any of those things, most of these remain hidden under the surface of the conversation. But they're present because of the distortion that has taken place in the the previous two statements, the statement of interest and the, and the statement of emotions. So if we can then say, um, how does this feel to you, and uh, why, would it, why does it feel like that, and uh, what does it mean to you, the questions like that, or why do you feel so strongly about that, what's really underneath this for you? Right. Um, then we start to get something much, much deeper, and that's where the conflict is actually organized. So the purpose of the chapter on language is really to reveal these things and to offer mediators or ordinary people who are not mediators um, specific concrete ways that they can shift conversations in a different direction. Yeah, I love it. I love that chapter because it really gives you a, another tool. And, and so often when we're growing up, we don't learn those kinds of tools about how to handle conflict. And, and you can say the same thing, uh, basically. I mean, you can get the same intent across of what I really want. I want you to help me with the housework. You get that intent across in a much more um, more civil way so that you're more likely more likely to get what you want. Yes. Yeah. So the question then becomes, why don't we do that? And the answer is because we want it so badly, because we're afraid of what the answer could be, that maybe the person doesn't love us. Um, But we're so uh, vulnerable when we get to this level that we would, uh, we're a little afraid of going there. And so instead we keep the conversation at a more superficial level. Right. And then it becomes disguised and distorted and the other person gets confused. Here's the best example that I use in the chapter. Uh, if your audience were there, you know, with you, uh, yeah. I could see them. I would ask them to raise their hands. Uh, but I think the, instead we'll just ask them to just admit to yourself if in your conversations with the people that you love, you use the words, you always or you never. Right. <laughs> okay? So many, many people use these words. and. 
what then the question becomes, well, how does the other person respond when you use those words? Very angrily. No, what what do you mean I always do this? I didn't do this yesterday. (laughs) Yes. So they say, no, I didn't, or yes, I did. And was that the reason why you used those words, to get that response? And the answer is generally no, that isn't why you use those words. You wanted them to get something about the communication. So what exactly have you done? Well, the answer is you have taken two communications and combined them into one. Mm -hmm. And the first communication is you are doing this too often for me or not enough for me. And the second one is I'm going to exaggerate how often you're doing this, because I would like to communicate to you how frustrated I'm getting and ticked off I am, because it's happening all the time now, and I'm starting to feel like you're not listening to me. Mm -hmm. And that makes me wonder whether you do respect me or whether you do love me. And so I'm going to exaggerate it so that you will hear the exaggeration and know that I'm actually combining a factual communication with an emotional one. But of course, nobody gets that. I mean, they may get that it's a, a, an emotional communication, and but what they really get is this is the other person is accusing me of something that's unrealistic. Right. It's not factually correct, and so the whole conversation just goes right off the rails. And and they just um, they they're not conscious. That's what's the hard part, right. and that's what's the beauty of your book and and what you teach and and what we all try to teach in mediation is that we need to be conscious of what we're saying and where this is coming from. And yes. and what I notice, and I know you do too, is that sometimes it's so hard for people to get to that deeper place to understand where it's coming from. Yeah, it is. Uh, they, they spend a lot of time actually avoiding going there. They're not sure how safe it is to raise these issues with the other person. Um, many, uh, even... Uh, 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 very intimate couples tend to watch their step a little bit with each other, uh, to be a little bit careful about raising things um, that are that are difficult. But the other reason we do it is just because in the moment of anger, when it happens, that's how it comes out. But the important thing to know is that anger is not the deepest emotion. It's relatively superficial. Um, and what it reveals is um, that there is something the person cares about. Yes. Because nobody gets angry over things they don't care about. Right. So now we can have two conversations, one about anger and one about caring. Which one would you rather have? <laughs> Right. right. So, um, and and of course, people. The, the the one thing about anger is that it's like a fire alarm. It right. It it's an yeah. alarm, and it it's so. You know, I mean, you and I both tell people anger in itself is really not a bad thing. It's an important thing because it's alerting you to something you do care about, or something you're worried about, or something that has to be dealt with right away. Yes. And oftentimes also you need to get to the place of anger in order to see what is actually underneath it. Right, right. You have to actually experience it um, in order to be able to get to the next deeper level and be able to talk intelligently um, and collaboratively about the things that do matter to you. Yes, and, and I love this for people who are listening and you're saying to yourself, gee... 
this is this is by a meteor. This is by an uh, you know a longtime attorney. This this sounds like a holistic attorney. And 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 I always say, yeah, I'm a holistic attorney. And I know, and people will say, isn't that an oxymoron? And I go, well, there's more and more of us around, right? Uh huh. And so yep. I guess that kind of leads to your chapter three when you talk about building bridges between psychology and conflict resolution and, you know, and that implication for where we need to have that higher consciousness, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is um, a very simple way to get here uh, to this basic idea, and that is um, what is the difference between a disagreement and a conflict? Yes. And the answer is, I think, is the presence of negative emotions. Mm. And therefore, that means that every conflict has an emotional component. And of course, you can't really experience conflict without experiencing your own emotion. Right. And what psychology brings to conflict resolution is a lot of in-depth understanding and study of emotions and how they're formed and uh, interven- even interventions that are possible uh, and ways of understanding uh, emotional expression that I think are directly applicable to a lot of what um, mediators do. Yes. Uh, there, there's a, a wonderful quote from Carl Jung at the beginning of that chapter uh, where he says, uh, a psychologist Carl Jung, who says, uh, uh, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. Right. Right. It's so like that I, old saying, yeah. you know, um, what what we see in others that bothers us is something in ourselves that we don't want to look at, right? Yes, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know. I, I love it. And so, and so how, you know, I think the issue for people is, you know, how do you get there without a therapist? And, and I, a lot of people now can't afford therapists, you know, right. so they have to kind of read your book or, or get, you know, to the point where they start to ask their own questions, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And even possibly without a mediator being present as well, although we would not want to admit that <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, because we want everybody to mediate everything. But the object of mediation really is to help people become uh, more aware of the dynamics of their conflict. So there are a number of things that people can do on their own. Great. Uh, and I wrote a book called Resolving Conflicts at Work, um, which is out in paperback. And one of the chapters in that book is called Learning from Difficult Behaviors. Yes. And the object is to say, uh, well, there, there's another way of describing it, which is what I do in the crossroads of conflict. And that is to say that every conflict in our lives defines is defined by two um forces. On the one hand, it's defined by a problem that we are now required to solve. Yes. And on the other hand, it's defined by the fact that we do not yet have all the skills we need in order to solve it. So, for example, teenagers get into conflicts with their parents over curfew, but uh, two-year-olds, well, some two-year-olds might get into conflicts with their parents over curfew, but mostly (laughs) it's a teenage problem. And once you are 50 or 60, hopefully you're not having those conflicts anymore. And the reason is because you have learned the skills that you need 
in order to be able to manage your own life. Yes. And the difficulty with teenagers is they are in transition. Mm -hmm. So we can say that the conflicts over curfew are transitional conflicts, but then we can say every conflict can be seen as a transitional conflict, uh, as as a problem of how do I develop the skills at being able to handle and solve this type of problem. Yes, conflict calls for change, doesn't it? Yes. It, it calls us to a higher growth, a higher uh, consciousness, because if we can, if we don't get through it, it's going to keep, it's going to be there, right? If we don't learn and the new skills. we're going to come back to it right. time after time. Right. And many people have noticed this in their relationships, their significant relationships. We get attracted to the same kind of people because what those people represent is an opportunity for growth and learning on our part that we haven't yet fully recognized or accepted. And we take ourselves, yeah, and we take ourselves with us wherever we go. So if we haven't learned these skills, they're going to come out. If, you know, this is what I tell people, if you don't learn these skills now, you know, the next wife will have maybe a different name and a different size and different color hair and eyes. But those issues are going to come up again until you get these right now, until you learn this. Yeah. Great, great point. That's a perfect intervention, Mary. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and I love this book. So I, I, I also found Chapter 4 to be really interesting about bringing oxytocin into the room. Oh, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about we oh, We have about five more minutes, so we do have time for you to kind of address this. But I'm just, I thought that was really a great chapter, too. Let's talk about that. Okay. So, um... There, there won't be time to, to describe the entire thing, but for right. those who are interested, uh, Chapter 4 is not, uh, called uh, Bringing Oxytocin into the Room, but the subtitle is Notes on the Neurophysiology of Conflict. Yes. And what it basically is is a summary of over a hundred, maybe a couple hundred research studies on what happens to your brain on conflict. Yes, and how the brain reacts. And so what the basic underlying proposition is that there are there's a dual there are dual pathways inside the brain, everybody's brains. And there are two neurotransmitters that are important in conflict. The first of course is adrenaline, uh, and that is triggered by seeing something that is potentially dangerous or hearing it or experiencing it, in which case a message goes uh, to the thalamus inside your brain and then to the what are called uh, the amygdalae, which are two little almond-shaped places in your brain that uh, conduct a kind of threat assessment. And once the threat has been determined, the amygdala then sends messages to the prefrontal cortex saying, you can think whatever thoughts you want, but we're hijacking the brain. Yeah. Um, and then it sends a message to your stomach and your intestines to say, we're taking all the blood from you and sending it to your muscles because you may have to run or you may have to hit. And you're going to need that, and your brain is going to need it as well. Uh, and all of these things take place way below the level of conscious attention. Your breathing speeds up. Your pupils dilate. All of these messages go out. And the second pathway, it also has a neurotransmitter, which is oxytocin, which many people now know about. And 
Oxytocin is a complicated uh, neurotransmitter. What it does basically is it breaks down adrenaline. And for this reason, it has been shown to be very important, uh, crucial really, for monogamy, uh, for trust, and for social bonding. And so um, oxytocin breaks down adrenaline, adrenaline breaks down oxytocin. So we have a part of our brain that is getting ready to fight or flee, and another part of our brain that would like to have a conversation. How do we trigger the, ox the release of oxytocin? The answer is any uh, uh, act of generosity, any acknowledgement or thank you or kind words. Um, what also triggers oxytocin, of course, is sex, um, uh, affection of any kind, physical affection, uh, but just being affectionate also does it. Looking at a photograph of a baby, especially your own baby, being present at the birth of a baby, even if it isn't your own baby, attending a wedding, right. all of these things release oxytocin that reduce adrenaline and build social bonding. And that's, we are just out of time. What a perfect way to end. You are just so wonderful. Kenneth Cloak, oh. who is the author of The Dance of Opposites, you can just hear from this. This you're going to have to read this because it is just it's it's fascinating, and I think it's really uh, a wonderful, wonderful book. So we will have you back again, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us. Just give Thank your you, website, Mary. honey, and it's time to go. Hello. Yes. Oh, just give your website, and it's time to go. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the website is uh, www.kennethcloak.com. Okay, and we will we will definitely keep in touch. And thank you. And keep up all the wonderful work, Ken. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Mary. Okay, bye-bye. You've, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Monday morning at 8, 8.30 a.m. for prescriptions for healing conflict and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.